I have a dream to make movement practice universally understandable and accessible to anybody in the world and even understandable to those who are outside of the culture. I've started with the podcast featuring conversations that I have with teachers and practitioners who are in this community. I've learned so much from these conversations and really connected with people, both the listeners and the people that I've got on the podcast, and that's been a real joy. And so I want to pay that forward. I want to help listeners to this podcast also connect with other listeners and with teachers who I have on the podcast. So I'm really pleased to announce the opening of the Active Hang. The Active Hang is an online discussion board or a forum, a space for thoughtful and critical discussion on movement practice. You have a question? You want to meet the others? Jump on the Active Hang, say hello, ask your question and connect. My dream for the Active Hang is that it can become an asset to the community, a knowledge bank, a resource, one where people come and contribute. Where can you find it? It's on thepassivehang.com. It's free to sign up. Come in and say hello. Once more again, you can access it at thepassivehang.com. Episode 46 of The Passive Hang. Today, we have David Tilston joining us on the podcast. David is a former Royal Marine with a very interesting backstory, and we get to have insight into what it actually is like to serve time on the front lines, as well as discovering his deep explorations into various disciplines such as yoga and a principle-based martial arts called Filipino Kyushu. A deep and wonderful chat. We're going to get started now. I'll see you guys in the episode. Hey guys, we're at uh, episode 46 of The Passive Hang. 46, and I've got David Tilston on the podcast. I'm really happy to connect because David was a listener who reached out to me, I think, a few months ago, and we shot a few messages back and forth together, and I was like, oh, what we were discussing was really interesting, and I wanted to find out a bit more, and I thought, oh, instead of maybe just going back and forth with messaging, this might be a good opportunity just to connect over a conversation and then share that conversation as well. So to my knowledge, David is, um, is a movement coach, and he's located in the south coast of the United Kingdom. Um, so that's just about all I know at this moment. So we can use the rest of the conversation to unpack the rest of your background. But welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be on there. Um, yeah, I've been listening for a while, actually. Uh, some really good conversations. Uh, diving in deep as well, which is a good thing. Um, it's very easy to stay on the peripheral and just look at uh, movements but it's really interesting to see people talking about concepts and principles that's something that um yeah keen to explore more time goes on yeah definitely and i think that's what we were discussing in our chat which i am keen to share with the listeners a bit later on but maybe if we just give the guys a bit of insight as to who you are like what are you doing at the moment um <laughs> uh Spending a lot of time indoors. No, not really. Um, it's, yeah, we, we've obviously got uh, in the UK, we've got uh, sort of coming towards the end of our sort of third lockdown. So it's definitely been a time where work has shifted. So my, my focus was primarily in physical teaching, a lot of time with people, like many people around the world. Um, and it's definitely shifted more to an online model, which has had its uh, challenges, but it's been very, uh, very good to sort of um, 
unravel projects that have been in the background for a long period of time that because I've wanted to train and teach, they haven't had the time to come to the forefront. So I haven't had that space. So yeah, primarily teaching movement through, um, I still teach forms of yoga, yoga asana, um, but slightly different, very well, very differently to how I initially learned. Uh, hand balancing is a big thing. Um, martial arts has been an ongoing thing for the last 10 years. And then just all of the strength aspects around that. So looking at bodyweight strength, and then integrating some of the, the principles, which I'm sure we'll go into um, within those, uh, how do you say? Yeah, within those containers, if you call it that. And with the move into online coaching, you were saying that it gave you the chance to maybe do some things that you hadn't had a chance to do before. Mm -hmm. uh, before. So maybe what's one of these little gifts that it's forced you to unpack and explore a little bit further on yeah so um i think one of the hard things with online is communicating something you, you've learned and when you can physically demonstrate it or you can explain it in person or with feeling and touch and sensation it's a lot easier to communicate that concept so when you then start to try and push it out online you then need to use different tools to explain that so annotations uh, various other different bits and pieces and more words and words is all um, language is always a barrier between what I think they mean and what the other person interprets those words as so it's been really good to actually look at that and try and make things as simple as possible for others to understand so a lot more online training on one-to-one one-to-one uh, -one basis which I, I've really enjoyed actually like giving someone a program for a month uh, them submitting videos quite a standard model and then uh, giving them a PDF program to follow as well as videos and that sort of stuff. So I filmed probably 300 plus videos in the last year. Um, and then I was working with a company or I'm working with a company called the natural edge. Mm -hmm. So that's very much about a human first approach, which is the, the guys I work with are ex special forces and ex Royal Marines as well. Um, and what, everyone saw is that in the industry there was this this sort of drive towards fitness more so not so much in the movement culture but more in the conventional fitness world and there was a lot of gaps in in regards to like circadian rhythm and sleep and all these other bits and pieces that weren't really being talked about as much they are now but they weren't say four or five years ago and yeah i, I got stuck into that about 14 months ago and we've developed three programs we've got a thousand members on uh, one of them which is like a, wow. oh, it's been good. It's, we didn't think it'd do so well, uh, but that's from around cold water. So we've got people around the UK and that jumping in 360 litre bins outdoors all the way through the winter, full of water, not rubbish. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were bought, but we, we do recommend that people buy the bin specifically not with rubbish in or like just, <laughs> in it. um, so yeah, we've had people doing that and that's been, that's been brilliant uh, along with combining the breath work I've learned in the past and used for about six, seven years now. And yeah, people are seeing different aspects of their life improve because of using very simple 30 minutes a day uh, processes. So that's something else we've got stuck into and yeah, we're running events later this year, fingers crossed. Uh, so, so that's all coming, but now the time where we start to get back to teaching, it's juggling all of the the online stuff with how do i integrate the physical teaching back into this because my time is limited so how do mm. i how do i juggle this stuff so that's where i'm at 
That's going to be a unique challenge. Yeah. Cause now you've filled up your bucket with, with something else. And <laughs> <laughs> when you, I'm, I'm sure you really love teaching in person as well. And you, you want to, you want to return to that. So that's going to be challenging. And I do have to laugh at when you were saying how you were saying people were going into the ocean during winter, because back when I visited the UK, I think for the first time, I tried to go for a mm. swim just out off the coast of Newcastle and I didn't make it past uh, knee deep. So I <laughs> hats off to all these guys who are doing this. <laughs> yeah, New, Newcastle is, is, um, is a lot colder up there. I mean, the sea temperature is probably like four or five degrees cooler. So in the mm. winter here, say it's been down to about seven this year. Um, the bins have got down to say the bins, uh, the water in the bin has got down to sort of 0.1 degrees. So that has been cold. Um, but yeah, Newcastle runs cold all year. You've got the North Sea uh, mm. running around those regions. So that, there's quite a difference between the south and north of, of England. Um, you're pushing more towards Scotland and Newcastle. So I've got then, family. My family came from Newcastle. So that, that's how I know it quite well. Uh, nice. So I wanted to get a bit into your background because you said you're um, been involved with this program, Natural Edge, which is for ex special forces. And um, I, I think on your profile, you were saying that you are or you were a former Marine as, as well. So maybe can you tell us a little bit more about how that all happened and your involvement there? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I was into football from a young age. It's probably the, the sort of earliest link I can derive from this. It's like I was into football, into movement. I got into running. Uh, I liked fitness, the, the challenge of pushing times and just seeing what the body would do, really. I think I was quite inquisitive around that from a younger age. Um, mainly probably due to Rocky films on repeat, <laughs> <laughs> like most lads. Um, various other bits and pieces. But yeah, I, I then got into, uh, got through school, started to do A-levels and realized that wasn't where I wanted to go. I, I, I didn't want to go to university. It didn't seem like a, an evolution for me. Um, I had quite a strong military background in my family and a couple of my friends had joined the Marines. And I was due to go down the officer route or I wanted to go down the officer route. But to become a Royal Marine officer is you're talking at least a year. And then with all the processes, it's really like a two year process from start to finish to actually become one. And two of my friends were just loving it. Absolutely enjoying every, well, I say enjoying it's a, it's a challenge, but once you get through on the other side of it is, is um, rewarding. And I just thought, you know what? I, I want to join at 18. Um, the Afghanistan conflict was kicking off at the time. Uh, Iraq was, was being pushed through quite significantly. So, that, so these things were going on at present and then other things were happening as well. And I thought, I, I think I always want to experience that. I want to experience what it would be like to deploy. Um, mm. And two years into my career, um, I, I did after training and then moving to Scotland and, and various other bits and doing some sort of... Um, what was I doing? It, it's sort of glamorous security work within the military, call it that, in Scotland. And then we, we moved to a unit, deployed to Afghanistan in 2007. So that was, that was an eye-opener uh, in terms of seeing how other people live and seeing how simplicity can also breed like, happiness as well, how, how simple mm. concepts, how people can live with barely anything but still be happy. Um, yeah, and we saw things, there were challenges. We, we, you deal with things in conflict, which you would not deal with in normal life. And it challenges your, your drills, the, the things you've learnt, your human first approach. 
Uh, like how, how well can you look after yourself and the people around you? Because I think it's prevalent in society now that if we don't look after ourselves, it impacts on other people. And that is really something that is drummed into you in the military. Mm. That if you, if you can't sustain your own body and your own kit, then it will fall upon the next person to look after you. And that's something I definitely took out of that time. So I did, I did four years in the Marines and decided it was enough for me. And then I moved on to the fire service after that. Amazing. And you know, when you were over and deployed there, so you were experiencing like actual combat quite frequently mm-hmm. or what, what was it like actually being out there? Um, we, so we deployed to a forward operating base and it was about 70 kilometers away from the main battle camp. So it was definitely in the thick of it. And it was a Taliban stronghold or Taliban town initially. And then previous, funny enough, uh, my friend Alex that got me into the Marines or suggested it was serving at that exact location, which is honestly, there was about I don't know, 15 locations at the time. And I ended up at exactly the same one that he did one year later. Hmm. Um, so, so they basically started to build the camp within a town and then that's where we were held up. So yeah, there, there were things happening. We, we got fired up on a lot. We, we knew where the enemy was. We were constantly patrolling to their forward line of um, basically where we knew they would sit. Yeah. Rocket. I, I remember being on the phone as well and a rocket. Uh, I was chatting to my, my mom at the time. And she said, how is everything? And honestly, it had been quiet for three or four days. And I heard this bang, a Chinese rocket went straight <laughs> over our heads and hit the, hit the back of the Sanger on the other side. And uh, I was like, don't worry, they're testing grenades. Phone <laughs> went down. <laughs> and um, I phoned it back an hour later. And yeah, th- those things started to become a little bit more frequent towards the end. And the conflict changed big time halfway through. So you get to come home. And I think that's one of the hardest things coming home, feeling normality again, and then deploying back to that scenario. It's mad how you can be like six, seven hours away from something like mm. this. And yeah, I went back and the whole conflict was different. So first part of the conflict, you'd get shot at second part of the conflict, the floor blew up. So it was mines and IEDs. And I knew from just witnessing a few things and, and the feeling you carry around with you on patrol, it, we'd cover six, seven kilometers an hour. Like mm. if we were doing good pace uh, prior to this thing, then it was almost like one kilometer an hour. That was the difference at the, at the end of the conflict. Sorry, the end of the time I was in this conflict. So I decided that there was a few things, a few close shaves. Um, and I thought I, I enjoy moving so much. I enjoy this, this sort of practices so much that I didn't want to risk potentially uh, going back and something happening as well. Um, and I feel it was the right move for me. It felt like the right time, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's a testing, testing environment. And, but you, you see, you find the fun in it as in it, you laugh a lot, a lot. So things that you wouldn't normally laugh at, you definitely find the humor in it. And the humor is so important in adversity. So mm-hmm. cheerfulness in the face of adversity is a raw means quality. One of the qualities we stand by. And that really came, came to the forefront during those times. Yeah, I was going to ask how you deal with that subjective layer of, you know, we, we kind of do handstands or even acrobatics or like say you're doing a parkour jump, you know, it's pretty scary, yeah. but you know, you're talking like you could die here. I, I've never been in a situation like that. So how did you kind of face that time and time again, when you're walking through something where you think, you know, you could step on a mine and then that's it. Yeah. Um, 
I'd say there's an, I learned this a lot when I actually got into to yoga, um, is that, I, I mean, I'm not a hardcore yoga practitioner. I wouldn't put myself in that bracket, but I definitely learning those teachings six, seven years ago made a big difference. The aspect of surrender. Um, obviously surrender in the military is not something you like to throw around too much, but mm. <laughs> the concept of letting go, uh, is something that really actually, when I reflected back on it was something that I had to adopt that when you'd leave for patrol, you sort of let go of the fact that it could happen, but you're not, you're there for the person next to you. It became very much less about yourself and more about looking after the person next to you. Mm. And you just dialed in on your drills, listened to the Intel, uh, where things were being placed. You'd, you'd, we'd find things, you'd, you'd dig them up. Um, there's a number of stories about people digging things up, the initial charge going off, them getting sent backwards, but the actual main charge didn't go off. Mm. Um, I, I wouldn't say that, that fear doesn't exist. Fear definitely exists. And I think fear is a good thing. I think talk, talking about parkour jump, parkour is not something I got into massively. And um, it's always been there, like maybe, maybe I could experience this thing. Because you fear keeps you on the edge. If you lose fear, then you've probably got to a point where you don't appreciate how dangerous something could be. And that's definitely something we took out on patrol every day. But you just got on with it. And and also you just say, right, I'm here for X amount of time and I'm going to I'm gonna leave this conflict at some point. Um but yeah, it's um yeah, you, you take things away from there and you value life more. I think that's the big thing. You value your life more when you come back from those things. It's just important to uh, be grateful for these things. It's, it's something I've taken forward yeah. from leaving the military. And what do you think are some of the, like, the biggest misconceptions about the military? You know, Because sometimes it has like a certain type of perception, right? If you say, like, oh, I was in the military, I'm, I'm sure you get different sort of reactions. Yeah, we've got... Um, the British military has, I don't know how I'm sure it is apparent in other militaries as well. You've got sort of different forces. So you've got the, the Royal Navy, the Royal Air Force, the army, and then the Royal Marines are attached to the Royal Navy. So it's the amphibious uh, assault group. There is a slightly different, um, there is a yeah slightly different mentality in the Marines in that uh, because the training is eight months long uh, or 32 weeks, you, if you can, if you carry in any bad attributes, they get um, taken away from you, put it that way. So you get taken right down to scratch. You, you get, um, remember certain exercises, not sleeping more than like two, three hours in a week. Um, and then almost like falling asleep, standing up at the end of it. And it does mean that you, you tend to find in the Marines, there's a little bit more of, um, how to say it, uh, people seem to be a little more chilled. I did used to find within the Marines. Um, certain, I have other people, um, family in, in the army and various other forces. And there's a slight different mentality in there. Not say any of them are correct or wrong, but yeah, I, th I think what you're sort of leading towards is like the, the military persona is very much like this hard, hard, like I'm going to attack this, like one, two, mm. three, very much like this. Yeah, that does exist. And that structure is there. But what I did find is the good instructors or the good corporals or training teams would teach you how to let go of that, use the structure and then work from it very much like a, like a movement practice. Hmm. You're going to move to step one, step two, step three, step four, but it could be four, two, one, three, or it could be any combination of these. Um, so again, it's going from structure to uh, a form of like improvisation almost. Mm -hmm. And 
yeah, you, you get, again, it's just many different personalities in there. I met the most chilled people I've ever met in my life in that, because especially the ones that have been to conflict when they came back, oh, they were different people together. So yeah, it's a, a mixed persona within mm. And you mentioned drills and, and training. What was the training actually like, or, you know, if we thought it other than maybe military specific, but like mm. just developing the physical body, that sort of stuff, what did, they focus on um so in the initial stages you go for something called a prmc well this did exist prior to this so you'd, you'd spend months getting your fitness up to a certain level you then go down for two uh, i think it was two days testing um and then they then decide if you had the right mentality or uh physical attributes to be in order to go on to the next course you then get a course date and start so i started in the september uh, so i went through winter and then finished in the summer and initially you just start with uh, basic military, uh, military craft. So you looking after your bed space, looking after your kit, making sure everything's clean. If things weren't clean, then they would, uh, um, yeah, things would get trashed. So then you'd have to clean everything instead of just one thing. Mm. Um, we were in a room of 60 people initially, and that was, that was a great experience and, the laughs you have are just insane at the next level um from the just from the, the things that happen you get more stories in like a year than you get in 10 years of being outside and yeah you, you get beaten down as in like you get really pushed so there's a huge emphasis on cardiovascular uh health carrying kit uh which definitely became apparent when you move into operations how much more kit you carry on ops mm. and you, you are built up slowly but there's a lot of running a lot of rope climbing so in the marines being amphibious troops you end up doing a lot of work in the pool as well so a lot of swimming underwater work uh diving off three meter boards and you have to like fall off backwards as confidence tests high ropes courses uh fireman's carry so i was one of the lighter blokes i always ended up with somehow carrying one of the heavy guys so i had like 32 stone on my feet at one point like in, wow. in total um which was ridiculous with, with the kit um, or just under that. So it's really about pushing you to a stage that you think you can't attain and then showing you that where the mind or where, the, where you think you'd give up, you actually could probably do another hundred percent more. Um, and that's made me really, so, well, yeah, maybe if, maybe I can do a little bit more, maybe I can hand balance for another hour. Maybe I've got that extra minute in my max hold. So, so it is very transferable, but yeah, they beat you down and build you back up. So you become very much uh, part of the machine, but intuitive. Yeah, I imagined, you know, that all pays off once you're actually deployed and then you're carrying that, you know, kit and you just have to keep on pushing on. Or are you even thinking about that? You're just like, you know, you just got to do things, right? And it doesn't become a question anymore at that point. I think it's because everyone around you is in the same situation. It feels mm -hmm. very normal. Um, I think it would be like if you went to... <laughs> if you went to like a high intensity class and then you started doing capoeira in the middle of it, it would seem very out of place, but because if all of you are doing the same thing, it's just, you just get on with it. You just, uh, in that space, but we were deployed with the Estonians in Afghanistan. So we were a liaison detachment. There's five of us and we were communications guys that would locate with the boss and then we'd communicate back to the British. So we had a, a comms link. So we had to carry the radios as well as, the, the ammunition so that was a challenge as well um how many kilos do you normally carrying in that pack oh it varies so um 
in so your assault kit used to be about 22 pounds plus the rifle which was say say 10 kilos plus the rifle which doesn't seem like much but you normally do like six mile runs or 10 mile runs with that kit um and then you've got like your patrol pack which was about 45 pounds to so say 20 kilos and and then in afghanistan or like as a signaler you would carry in excess of 80 pounds up to 100 pounds wow um and i, I think at some points uh, not necessarily myself but there are there's been a lot of cases where guys have been carrying in excess of 120 pounds so which is crazy i mean if you think of like it is backbreaking i remember certain exercises just and, and times where you just you doubled over and you you sort of move on 10 paces then you take a break then you move on 10 paces um so yeah weight training and strength is important and that's definitely something we can uh yeah touch on but that's uh <laughs> something i let go of a lot because i felt like i didn't need it too much but mm -hmm. i i found that strength training is very important in all aspects of life yeah definitely and so i guess you mentioned that after that you decided to return and um mm -hmm. and move on and you went to the fire service so yeah maybe do you want to explain what happened after that so you, you obviously made a transition as a firefighter and then somewhere then you I don't know if it was the yoga first, but then you ended up in this movement field. It seems, you know, kind of correlated, but also very different. So <laughs> I want to hear the journey. Uh, yeah, fire service. I was, a, I was funny enough, um, I left the military, had a job lined up in the fire service, and then got told that they weren't recruiting due to funding issues. So I had a year without. So I ended up working in a sports nutrition shop, working for a brand called Cymex Nutrition for a while. Um, and doing promotions and that sort of stuff. So I was training alongside it. And then I, the fire service came through, did the training. And then in the, in the UK fire service, there used to be a shift pattern of two days, two nights, four off. So I used that time off to study um, and continue my training. Uh, I got into martial arts at the same time as joining the fire service. And I met my teacher and he opened my eyes to um, not moving like a brick. Let's call it that. And, uh, I was very blocky. I was in a lot of strength training, uh, mm -hmm. pushing a lot of weight. And I realized that I wasn't, I couldn't flow in any capacity. There was, there was a lot of flat edges, put it that way, a very much stop start approach to, to movement. And he basically started to show me how utilizing less energy can sometimes be more effective. So taking those concepts through and then using things like kettlebells, more club bells, uh, Indian clubs, uh, may spells all that sort of stuff that started to come in more so i moved away from sort of, well like bodybuilding basically into this this field i found my fitness improved uh in the fire service because of it and continued my road cycling and various other bits and pieces and uh, i had a tendency to i have a tendency to do a little bit too much like i like <laughs> to do probably like many it's like i want to cycle but i want to swim and i want to do hand balancing but i also want to mm -hmm. do some movement and um it's sometimes you have to say stop enough enough so i i went through the fire service doing that studying pt quals and kettlebells various other bits and pieces um and i did about six years in there and that i went i met my wife um and she basically said to me like she was doing yoga at the time and she said why don't you start we met a teacher. She said, why don't you go abroad and study where I studied in Thailand on Koh Samui. And I started to look at yoga more as my mobility improved. My martial arts got better. I got freer 
uh, I, I could release a little bit more energy and I got a bit hooked uh, as I think most practitioners do I got very much in that mindset like I need to get more mobile I need to get <laughs> more, more arm balances and all this sort of stuff and then I got back to the fire service and I got a message and it was from Thailand and they said would you like to come back and live here and be our fitness manager uh, and teach so I jumped to the opportunity and people didn't really leave the fire service um, especially especially because it was a lot like a life career and i i just said to my wife uh well my girlfriend at the time why don't we move why don't we do this because if we haven't got children then um didn't have children at that point why don't we just go and experience this so we basically lived on Kosa Marie for the year studied more pranayama breath work various other bits and pieces and sounds, that really it sounds pretty good <laughs> oh it's horrendous it was horrendous <laughs> but it, it was good it, and, and i met so many good practitioners out there from what we, we call the movement uh culture uh within that space and like my friend nick who lives in ibiza nick brewer um i met him out there we were hand balancing together and we've been good friends ever since and yeah we, we stayed there for a the year then came back to england and realized we could actually take what we did there and bring it back here and teach different things and that really I think without that move, I might still be in the fire service now mm. and 40 plus hours a week, plus 12 hours commuting on the road would probably still be my week. Um, mm. Whereas now I get to spend more time teaching. So it, it was a, it was a move that was really important because that's what got me into this uh, full time. And at that time, would you have said that you were like a yoga practitioner or, you know, now you kind of have this umbrella term as, as movement or movement practice, movement coach. When did you start sort of thinking about it in those sort of terms? Um, I, I, I was always keen on, I always find if you just do one, there's not many disciplines that encompass everything. So these attributes are sort of needed from different parts. Like I almost think you need a little bit of, little bit of strength with a little bit of flow based drills, whatever it might be, a bit of improv, whatever you're sort of looking for. I, I love the club bells. I've used the club bells for um, say about 12 years now. So they, they range up to say 20 kilos and the rotational strength aspect to that was something that really fascinated me. And the hand balancing was big as well. So I met Miguel, I think I met Miguel before I left for Thailand because he was in London at his brother's place and i had to i just i was looking online for a hand balancer that could teach me and i found miguel's name it popped up I phoned them up traveled across london between night shifts and just we ended up training in a, in a tiny flat which i'm sure a few other people listening have probably been in when he was when he was living there and that really opened my eyes to hand balancing because i was like whoa the, all of these concepts that i started to learn through martial arts like the circles the spirals etc they existed within a static hold like mm. all of like how, how does the shoulder rotate how can you maintain position um so yeah people like miguel and i were like a big inspiration for actually getting into that stuff as well and i wanted to dig in a bit with this martial arts because it sounded like this was sort of the genesis of a lot of this shift as as well so yeah what is the martial arts that you study and um, it's called Filipino Kusho. So it was developed by um, my teacher, um, Jim Angelo Baldassoni. So Angelo's got about 50 years experience now in martial arts and he was training since he was a kid. Went through Shotokan karate originally, um, trained other forms of karate, 
uh, worked his way up to, I think he was a uh, six Dan at the time, he ran multiple clubs, then realized he started to look at more the Filipino um, martial arts and more things like uh, tools like Aikido as well. Uh, and then realized how much softer this could be. So more circles, spirals, and various other bits and pieces. So I, I started with him, it'd be probably about 11 years now. Yeah, 11 years I've been with him. And it's even evolved in that time. Like uh, Angelo's philosophy is that you should look back and go, what was I doing then? Like you should look back and say, whoa, what was I teaching? Because that's showing that as a teacher, you're developing as a practitioner as well. Um, so yeah, Filipino Kusho is basically a blend of what, I, what Angelo basically, so we had a discussion about this. I said, why is it called that? And he's like, do you know what? I had to pick something in the end because otherwise I changed the name consistently. And I think that's apparent with many people's forms. Mm-hmm. Like whenever you put a name on it, you stick it in a box. So you need to, but you can't sell something without a box. If there's no container, it's very hard to say, I do this or this mm-hmm. is what it is. So in the end you say, yeah, it's a bit of everything. What he likes to say is it's a martial arts bait based on principles of movement so it doesn't matter if this shape fits into this martial art it's just a shape it's just a punch from a certain angle or an attack from a certain angle it doesn't matter because it's just the human body moving in a specific way and you have to blend to that this is it's purely up to you on the receiving end of an attack to blend Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what the attacker does it's up to you to, to fill in the gaps and is it primarily just striking or there's a lot of grappling involved as well Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of everything. So you've got, um, I'll sort of list the boxes. It's, we've got, uh, yeah, we do Filipino stick work, blade work, knife, karambit, um, stand-up. Um, a lot. There is a lot of stand-up. Um, you'd call it Filipino dirty boxing or panantukan. Uh, you've also got uh, dumog, uh, so a lot of stand-up grappling. So for instance, like, like taking the shoulder and locking up the neck simultaneously to then transition into a strike. Um, and then there is aspects of groundwork as well, because um, Angelo's background was also in judo. So there is mm-hmm. forms of that within the uh, was, yeah, pre- pretty much anything, anything that you could think of has tried to be thrown into the pot. Because again, something I've learned from Angelo is that your weakness will be the point that you, if you don't know how to use a tool, that'll be the thing that's at your detriment. Um, everyone's good at the things they're good at but they try and rely so much on the good things that mm. the weaknesses are actually where the development is. Yeah. It sounds like it's quite a like generalist practice. And yeah. I'm thinking normally in other martial arts, you normally have these rules or boundaries, right? Outlining what you can or can do, you know, like in, in, in Taekwondo mm-hmm. um, with, with the kicks and stuff. But for Filipino Kyushu, do you have certain rules and boundaries that you place or is it very open? Um, I think it's very much about because it's um I think this is the difference between um martial arts and sports uh, is that uh sports obviously has uh rules in place to make sure that people don't get hurt too much so like in UFC there are things around like you wouldn't they try not to poke people in the eyes or mm. hit people in the back of the head and this sort of stuff because that that could cause long term damage the idea with the martial art really I mean martial in the fact that it was designed to to cause serious damage because you're only really using it if you really have to. So there aren't any rules at all. Um, when you spar, obviously you're trying to look after your partner. You're trying to make sure you don't hurt them too much. The only problem is, is that 
having a closed group seminars are brilliant because you get to mix with different energies and people that don't cooperate. But what you do find in a group is that because you end up being friends with the people in your group, even though you try to be awkward, probably on a subconscious level, you're still helping them somewhat. So Mm -hmm. those rules do not exist, but equally subconsciously, I think we go a little bit easier on each other. So yeah, seminars are brilliant because you do really experience if someone's being really awkward and if it really works or it doesn't. So that's a good ego buster. Go and train with someone that you you don't normally train with and then see if it works. Mm. And you mentioned that it's like a principle-based martial art. Can you share maybe some foundational principles that you guys explore? Yeah, of course. Um, I'd say say one of the big ones is like physical and mental posture. Um, And what I mean by that, so physical posture could very much be seen like, how do I hold my body? So posture... Posture is a funny thing. It's something I've really thought about at length over the years. Like, do you hold very much like the, the way I was taught was like lift up through the crown of the head, always remain upright. Don't lean forwards because you expose the, the head to attack or don't lean back because you expose your legs. So it's very much about keeping your center of mass between your feet. So your feet would always stay at hips distance apart. Wider stances mean that You've got a good base to fight off, but equally you're pinned because you haven't got the ability to shift as quick sometimes. So a narrower stance can benefit that. Um, the mental posture is a big thing as well. Like what do you carry into your practice? Do you drag in the, the day stresses into your practice or can you like switch off? Can you, can you be with your practice? Can you be your practice? And then can you go back to that stuff after? So there's very much a, like a life approach to this and that's why I go back to the human first approach. It's like deal with the health aspects because that does contribute to your mental posture. Like if you are healthy and you're eating well and you slept well, you're going to find it a lot easier. When I wasn't sleeping and I was doing like four jobs trying to sort of keep, keep the house going at the time, say about 10 years ago, highly stressed, I found it difficult to concentrate. So all these things are very intertwined. Um, I say one of the other big things is like um, management of spaces. Like how can you manage space? And that could be internally or externally. And I know like Edo's refer to this as inner frame, outer frame. Like how, how we express outward is very much what you'd see in the fitness industry, big moves of the limbs away from the center. But if you then think of the concept of like moving in the space as tiny as a phone box for like those that still exist, um, <laughs> you'd be having to do a lot of absorption in order to create space. And that requires a lot more movement of your center and your core and your spine. So how do these things interrelate? Um, management of spaces with two people is very different as well. You can have a practitioner that uh, is very good at managing their own space, but when someone is trying to disrupt it, how does that interrelate? And I know quite a few of your, your guests and teachers have, have spoken about similar concepts, especially those involved with dance and martial arts. Um, it's this constant weave and blend between mm. the two of you. And it is a dance. I, I absolutely love that. It's, um, you have to let go of this, like, oh, this could happen next. So you need to build up the toolbox in order to manage the space because it has to be intuitive in the end. Um, footwork's a big thing. We know that. Footwork. If you don't move your feet, you'll lean forwards. If you move your feet, your center comes with you. Um, circles and spirals. We talked about this briefly, didn't we? This mm. is what of I think was uh, interesting about capoeira and if you think of like karate kid very much like wax on wax off it's very mm-hmm. much like a like a 2d circle 
So the, that concept does work to a degree. Um, if you're trying to manipulate someone's posture, you want to think of like a long spiral, but it could be a short spiral. It depends how quickly you can take the slack out. And I have found the same thing in hand balancing, like how quickly can I take the slack out to create structure mm. in my own body? But if I want to take it away from someone else, I have to project that energy through and then draw it back to me. Um, and the good thing is every time I pose a question, I'm like, is it this? Angelo's like, yeah, it could be, but it could also be the opposite. So it's understanding that opposing principles are actually present all the time. Mm. Um, it, it's like if you push, you pull. This is probably the simplest way of explaining it. If, if, a mu- if one limb is pushing, you've got the opposing action on the other side, the limb to stabilize the joint. That principle applies. Like if you move a shoulder, you move the hip together. Everything has to go together. Yeah, it's kind of like just because you've experienced that, say, spiral force, if you're, if you're pushing, doesn't mean that that's the whole truth, right? Like it could go the other way. And then once you realize that, you're like, well, it doesn't make the other thing not true it's just <laughs> in a certain context, right? That, that framework provides you with the understanding, but then you can't then be potentially blinded by going, oh, then I'm just going to be able to apply that to every single other container or context that you, that you go into. Yeah. It's like, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like running into a tennis match, but you want to play football and you, you can't, so sometimes you, you might ha- you grasp a scenario so much and you go, oh, I've got this. And then you take it into a scenario, but it doesn't fit. Uh, I was told a great thing when I did my response driving by um, uh, a guy called Steve Mims. He's passed away now, but he, he used to say every road has a tempo. And I love that quote. Every road has a tempo. So you could look ahead and he could say you're going too fast or you're going too slow. You're not keeping up with the traffic. And that's definitely apparent in martial arts. And you probably experienced this in like Capoeira is that you can't go at your speed. You go at the speed that things are going around you and you have to blend with that or the timing doesn't fit. Mm. So one of the other big concepts is timing. So timing is everything. Like it doesn't matter. You could be in the space prior to the person being there like a great forward in football they're just there and they go they never run anywhere yeah but it's like he doesn't have to he's just there it's just boom head goes in brilliant 30 goals a season <laughs> um and that's timing all over that is is uh, apparent in everything absolutely every sport every movement uh, that, I, that i've witnessed for sure yeah i that makes me think back to when i was playing field hockey and then i remember i was coming from like a very strength biased practice before and I was like yeah this should be fine you know I should be able to do it because you know I felt big and strong but just one the footwork and then two the timing of being in the right places actually mm-hmm. acting fast was something I always really struggled at so it doesn't didn't matter that maybe if we were to run in a hundred meter sprint I might be faster than the other guy my reaction was always slower so you're mm-hmm. always starting off from the um from the back foot so yeah, yeah. I, I really liked all those um, concepts that you've outlined there because they've been embodied by me and probably for all the listeners, you know, you've, you've had situations as well where you've noticed these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like, as we learn a new technique or we get involved in a new skill, what I find interesting now is I have to, I mean, I enjoy hand balancing, for example, I'm not saying I'm good at it by any means. Um, I'm still chasing that one arm. And it's, uh, but I enjoy too many other things. The problem is I, I have this generalist approach and I think if I specialize and just did that and nothing else, then I know for a fact the timeline would be a lot quicker. 
Uh, but I'm enjoying the process. It, it is happening in conjunction with the other things I enjoy. So that's the way it is. But that's no reflection on, on Miguel or Yuval's teaching. Mm-hmm. It's just that I take my time with these things. Um, but I find now it's like I get to a point with something and I'm like, have I taken this? At what point is this too much? Like, have I, have I dived into this so much that I can now take these and try and apply it to something else? Um, I did a workshop with Tom Wexler and Matt Mulligan um, what would it be like three, four years ago? Great practitioners in there. And I was watching in awe and I thought, whoa, this is a, this is a gap in my practice. I, mm-hmm. I'm not good at this. I felt like, I felt like the, the guy in the room that had far less experience and it felt brilliant as well. Uh, really, really out of my comfort zone. And that's something I'm starting to explore again now. Like how can we take these things we've learned in one field and then just translate into another? It's always that eternal question, right? Like, how far do I go before we are limited by our resources, time and energy? When do we have to reallocate it to something else? You know, because you could keep on going down whatever hole you're digging through, right? And be perfectly happy as well. So there's always pros and cons to all the choices. And I think that's part of the difficult choices we sometimes have to make if we want to adopt a more generalist structure, because you know, it does, it feels really good to get good at things as well. Right. Like, I don't think we can deny that that feeling. So it's it's very tricky. Um, and I did want to ask you at the moment then, like what does your practice look like? Um, I've adopted, a, I, I've, I've prioritized. Um, you, yourself, you've got a little one as well. So I'm sure you can relate is, is mm. that um, life changes when, when another life comes into the family or like become, you, you have a family. Uh, so Esme is what, 18 months old now. So I've had to prioritize the human side first and foremost. So that is every morning it's, um, I use the infrared light as well. I've used that for a while. I think that's a brilliant thing. Um, the infrared near infrared light. So I'll do my breath work or pranayama, Kriya's pranayama. Um, I've been diving in back into the Wim Hof method recently, which I really enjoy and mixing that with aspects of pranayama. So I've got very much like a a stimulus aspect to my breathing practice and then like a parasympathetic activation through um, slower breathing, double the exhale to the inhale, continue for like 10, 15 minutes at a time. Cold water, daily walk and mobility. That's the start of every day. And fortunately I have a very uh, supportive wife who who lets me (laughs) get on with those things. But um, it, and, and again, I, I think that's really important to, to prioritize those because my movement practice definitely happens every day, but getting that sunlight, everything else sets me up. So my energy is far better because of those things, a lot more grounded because of the breath practice. Um, and it's funny how these things, breath practice is often, often the thing that disappears very quickly for people, but also the thing that can become one of the most important um, if it's built into a daily, daily system. Mm-hmm. So my moving really three to four hand balance sessions a week, uh, probably three to four strength sessions a week, say two upper, two lower, primarily body weight for the upper body and then a form of weight training uh, for the lower body because I do think the legs, my legs respond well to, to weight and biceps are important. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the, and the reason I'll say that is because I, I, pref- I said for years, I'm like, I've never done a bicep curl again. How, how dysfunctional is a bicep curl? And then you have a child <laughs> and you realize how important a bicep curl is. Like you're constantly holding them at 90 degrees yeah. or doing the most awkward deadlift to pick them off the floor or out of a cot. 
I was like, right, that's it. Biceps are back in. And <laughs> So, so they're, they're back in my practice. Um, but it's also really helped my elbows, uh, doing a form of weight training, um, and training the arms to build up more strength around the elbow. I I had a couple of niggles when I was doing a lot of, um, asana and a lot of hand balancing, put those back in, everything disappeared. Um, Mm. there's this obsession with stretching, but it fundamentally, a lot of these things lie within strength. The ability to control a joint at full range, um, is really important. There's a lot of practitioners have gone down, um, and then I like the road bike once or twice a week and I jump in the sea as much as I can. So they're, they're the main practices I have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and martial arts is twice a week when we get to practice again. Yeah, I guess, especially with martial art, um, it just doesn't compare when you're doing it solo versus with like another person, which is kind of designed <laughs> for almost. <laughs> yeah. The, the door doesn't fight back, but it's um, yeah. I've had to sort of improvise with, sort of things around the home it's like if i swing this door how can i react with my footwork and can i step around these things so it does make you more intuitive but yeah nothing compares to interacting with another human that is that is huge massive for us for for our mental health as well yeah and with the hand balancing the strengths like do you have you outlined certain goals that you want to achieve is that how you like to orientate I think it's important to have a goal, whether it's, um, whether it's a long distance thing to, to aim for, because it creates a journey. I think this is something I've tried to work with, with students is like, right, what do you want to work on? And they're like, I'd like to achieve this skill. I'm okay. We'll put that at the end of the list and then we'll create a journey. And that's going to, it's going to be all over the place. It's going to be up and down, but fundamentally we're going to look at an upward curve over the course of a year, two years. Um, Probably, I'd say the one arm's still up there. I mean, I, I don't think you'll ever, I, I think that one arm, looking at people like Miguel and Yuval and, and long-term practitioners, the, the many one-arm practitioners, John Last as well, um, that, these are the, the guys I've interacted with. They're always trying to, to build upon it. There's always the extra shape. There's always a little bit more of an improvement on the line or the twist or the figure or whatever it might be. Um, so that's up there. And that will be up there for a long time because I enjoy it. It's just a bit of headspace as well. It's just really nice to be in that space where falling over is, is more apparent than balancing on, on one arm. And mm-hmm. it's been good to go from two arms because I, I feel like I've made, I found a certain standard on two arms that I feel comfortable. And one arm is the natural progression as well as the strength stuff. So handstand push-up I've been working on for a while. Uh, the deeper form and also head to floor. Uh, stall the presses. I like them. I think it's a really good uh, marker for strength. I think you can really look at those things and say, okay, I'll, I'll check in with it every two months, see how it goes. Um, but I've actually introduced the handstand push-up more into my practice, into my strength-based practicing and instead of an overhead press. Uh, what else? Continued development through martial arts, just learning more about the refinement of the concepts. So instead of like adding more skills, actually understanding there's enough tools now, it's more about refining the process and understanding how can I use less energy to achieve the same thing. Mm. it's almost like i need to find more energy in my training because i'm not using it in my martial arts anymore so in order to maintain health or maintain health and fitness cardiovascular health strength etc it's reduced on that front but i found it through other things um uh yeah i mean that that's probably the the skill the main skills i'm going for the other thing is just maintenance I, i like going out on the road bike and maintaining 30k an hour 32k an hour that's just a nice thing for me mm-hmm. uh, to disappear into the forest for two to three hours so 
again that's a cardiovascular benefit i do think cardiovascular health is, is something we all need yeah i believe that too i think sometimes that can be overlooked when you bias towards maybe strength a, a little bit too much and then when you start putting back in that you just generally feel better as well and um in the practice you can go for a bit longer um i know when i've come back from bouts when i've been sick i, I feel that like cardiovascular fitness sometimes goes away pretty quickly and then that's what makes it really tough when you're coming back first of course and i, I found it fascinating as well i think because a lot of my initial training was very much in the fitness world very much like here's a program i didn't really address anything with those programmings though uh without those programs moving more towards like an Eastern approach in terms of you just do it, you just get on with it and it's going to appear as long as you dedicate the time to it. But that being said, coming back to looking at more like S and C work, uh, strength and conditioning sides of it, as I know you've got a background and as well is you understand that sometimes you gain the discipline from the long-term approach, but you do sometimes spend a little bit too long doing something that you could get to a little bit quicker. Mm -hmm. So if you look at programming, it, it wouldn't be a case of, just giving someone five reps all the time but like how do i how do i orientate this and and using myself as one of the main uh test dummies really to say like right i'm going to see how this this manipulates my practice so building up over a mesocycle and then breaking these processes down using various forms of periodization to to scale my training so it's not just i'm going to work a skill and just keep going till, till i'm done but there is actually a long-term approach to this with relating periodization and various other bits and pieces yeah, is all your practice programmed or are there some parts of it which is more loose and in intuitive? I'd say a bit of both. I've got a structure to uh, I try and uh, relate this back to climbing. Like you've got, you, you're being belayed, like you've got a top rope, but you can move where you want. So mm -hmm. you're, you're going up, you're on the route, but you have the ability to transverse across and try other things, but you've still got something to fall back on. Um, I noticed the benefit of having structured training definitely around for instance, like climbing stairs or uh, carrying things and that sort of stuff. These are these basic human functions that with a program, you start to notice your strength improves because you can climb stairs a lot better. If you were to I don't know, like moving house, carrying a wardrobe, these are things that are often overlooked, but this is part of life and mm -hmm. therefore part of the movement. Um, I'd say with a child structure, uh, and, and work as well. Like I'm doing like up to sometimes between 50, 60 hour weeks in terms of where I'm at at the mm -hmm. minute. And it has to, it has to adapt. And I've definitely chilled out a lot over the years when I was bodybuilding. It was like, if I didn't get my chicken and rice at one o'clock and if I didn't train at two with my, with my fake pre-workout, then I was, I was in a bad place. And, and now it's like, hey, uh, yeah, I've had a coffee, so be it if I have to wait two, three hours before I hand balance. Um, if, for me, I, I look at the development of the little one and how she squats, she crawls, she moves. It's very intuitive. It's very much in the moment. And I'm trying to sort of drag that into more so into my practice. Like, how can I just be with it? And I'm enjoying it more. Um, so, yeah, it happens when it happens. There's a lot of discussions between my wife and I, like, how can I where in this week would work best for my training and for you to get your training in because she has a practice number of practices as well um mm -hmm. there's that mutual understanding because we both train which is important so yeah there is a structure but it's flexible let's put it that way i like that i think yeah the more when you go later in life and you have other people depending on you especially mm -hmm. you can't play that role of like 
strict practitioner where it's all just about you, 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 and then like to have having the perfect program that can only exist in in certain time periods or maybe you know if you go to bali or something and you've you've given yourself that two weeks that's all um otherwise in the long term you know we do need to be flexible adaptable and sometimes the sessions you can't even complete it to uh to to the finish line right because maybe your your young one comes and then you need to take care of yeah yeah, and i I think there's value in that as well it's like so (laughs) It's, I've got programming from, so Miguel gives me a program for my hand balancing. We check in uh, mm. every month to two months. Um, I was probably thinking like, come on, Dave, you come on, you should be on this one arm by now. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I think there's value in like having to finish a practice early. Sometimes it's like before I would have said like, no, I will finish very much the military mindset of I will start, I will finish. But life isn't like that. Like it doesn't go that way. Sometimes you have to let go of these things. And again, it's that aspect of surrender. Can I step back from something and go, Hey, that's the way it is. Um, and, and some things take priority. And if, whether that's another life, whether that's like making sure that they, they are looked after and cared for. And that's something else that comes in. But I do think there's a lot of quality that is gained through just dropping the ego a little bit and saying, Hey, I'll pick it up somewhere else. I'll split my practice in two today. So I sometimes do micro practices for hand balancing. Mm-hmm. I know quite a few practitioners that develop very fast using this approach. Um, warm up in the morning, teach a class. My body's good to go. My wrists are prepared. I'll do a 10 minute, 15 minute practice. I'll check in again after lunch. I'll check in again in the evening. Um, and what I have actually found using that approach because I've been forced into it, it's actually seemed to like make it more natural, like walking. Yeah. Like if you, if you laid in the bed in hospital for a week, then you got up and walk. If you'd feel like Bambi, like your legs are all over, Bambi on ice. You feel like your legs are all over the place. Yep. Whereas if you're doing it consistently, you, you, your body's sort of preparing for it more. It's more of a natural process. And I do find both have their benefits, long practices for endurance, mental fortitude, etc and then shorter practices for consistency and utilizing both of these concepts and cycling them is something that can definitely benefit. Yeah. Isn't that, um, have you heard of Pavel Satsaline's method? Mm. What, what does he name, call it? I can't, I can't remember, but yeah, like say you want to gain on those, those pull-ups and you just distribute that like yeah. at a 70, 80% intensity all throughout the day. And then that will result in very, very fast gains. Of course. Pavel was one of the first, um, so he sort of dragged his work and Scott Sonnen dragged me out of, um, following them from a distance and get to train with either of them, uh, personally, but following like the tactic method and a few other bits and pieces that really dragged me away from the conventional bodybuilding world. Mm. Um, so it's funny you mentioned him because sometimes I've also understood how simplicity is very beneficial. So we tend to think, this movement complexity is within all of us. I think um, it's probably especially a lot of people listening that we think we need to get more complex with everything. Like we need to really dial this in, but some of the older practitioners I, I know, and especially the older coaches that are still practicing at a later stage, keep it very simple. It's like, Hey, I, I do like simple, sinister, simple, sinister, these sorts of things. Um, or like two movements, like a, a clean and press, um, and swings, for example, using a kettlebell will give a good adaptation and maintain good fitness over time. So the need to, to add in all of the technical stuff does exist. But sometimes I'm like, hey, maybe, maybe 10 hand balances and, and a walk and a quick hill sprint for eight minutes. Maybe that the benefits of that 
in terms of health will be just as good. Um, again, the simplicity resides complexity, and then complexity resides uh, simplicity. So it's those, those counter counter things constantly, isn't it? Yeah, it's very interesting um, because you imagine as well those practitioners at certain stages of their life we're going undergoing through the same transformation that we're doing now, which is seeking with curiosity all those complex patterns. And then maybe mm. after a certain time, after you have satisfied that curiosity, that's when you dial back and then you gain back more resource of time and energy and just keep things at that simple level, which uh, mm. allow you maybe then to share the art more of what you've experienced. I always remember when I was in Ibiza, uh, Nick's place, uh, Yaval was there and he was saying, he'd say to people come up and feel my neck so when he'd be in the handstand his neck was like it was so soft but you could see the alignment was was perfect the neck was soft everything was relaxed Mm -hmm. and it's like you get to a point where it's like the nervous system knows where it is the proprioception is so good it's like i know i'm in this space and i'm just going to be here um as opposed to and again there's benefits in this in the early stages push drive the arms up, like find that height mm-hmm. because you, you learn the position to be in. And then I think it's about you learn the rules and you learn how to play with them and push them to their limits and how little energy, like we're talking about martial arts, how little can I use to achieve the same thing? So again, that's where I think the benefit of simplicity um, really comes in. Like how can I achieve the same thing? But hey, I'm going to chill out in this position and stay here for three to five minutes. So that's, that's another quality. I really like that. Um how you describe that and how it's like that art of letting go almost or or using less energy to do the same task because Mm. you, you develop that efficiency. And I've sort of practiced this sometimes, you know, doing the Jinga and Capoeira back and forth and then moments where you're doing big sessions. Like there was someone that I took a workshop with and he was just saying, just think of yourself as splushing from side to side. And then when you think you're fatigued and really tired, actually don't fight it just relax into it and then realize that you can keep on going even more and that's it's going to be easier that way and yeah that was a real eye-opener for me as well and you know something that I do try and take into other areas and then even hand balancing but I think I'm still at that stage where I'm just like maximum tension just really trying to push (laughs) to 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 keep there so I haven't yet experienced that (laughs) yeah it's um I, again, I think, I mean, for hand balancing the initial stages, that, that sort of shoulder elevation um, is, is definitely something that comes in really handy. And I'm finding with a one arm just a push. Like I know very, very few people. I only know one person that has ever been told like you push too much um, for, the, for the one arm. Yeah. And I think that's literally because, and I've noticed from adding additional strength work that that has benefited that process. So so yeah, I, I think this is the thing I'm always weighing up is that when you're interacting with another person as well, it's like, how efficiently can I do it? Because I've had this discussion with, with Angelo reference martial arts. Like if I, the benefits of strength training is you are, you are causing a strength adaptation. So you are causing, as, as we know, like muscle, muscle tears, we replace it or we, we cause an adaptation to the neurological input to that muscle to cause it to fire more or endurance if we're looking at the systematic approach to like cardiovascular health and that sort of stuff. But equally on a martial arts approach, obviously there's the sport where cardio is, is, is huge and cardio is important to be able to run away or spar. Like you're not going to spar for more than two minutes if your cardio is poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always this way up between what's enough strength training and what's 
for my for my health and for my daily function which as we've said with a child it's like it's a different form of strength training you need these other things in place because otherwise you can't pick up like the countless amounts of things that come with being a dad which you never even envisage carrying like why am i carrying a seat and this a pram and where's the child it's like <laughs> um and then yeah in, in martial arts it's very much like how can i make this subtle and i've realized now like i i witness angelo do stuff with like literally take a, someone on a spiral just with a finger like just completely crush the person's posture mm-hmm. using that but he's projecting his energy from his center as opposed to just using his finger that's the difference it's this whole body moving the person although it appears like it's the end of the hand mm. like bruce lee's bruce lee's punch yeah the one inch uh, punch yeah <laughs> it wasn't and it was you just look at look, you look at the ripple go through the body it's everything's being generated and moves up through and it's like how can i create all that energy in a smaller amount of space and what is it that keeps you practicing like you know you've you've got various things going on and you know it sounds like it's been for some time as well you know right now it's a well you've got a young one as well more complications 50 60 hour work week yeah what what keeps you going i'd say it's become there's a number of things i think in the initial stages i saw this as like a form of therapy i I saw movement as a form of um escapism maybe Mm. um especially with with the amount of training i mean i used to do I used to cycle a hundred miles. I used to swim two miles on the same day. And then I used to run like 10 miles. Um, because that's, I, maybe I was escaping something and it probably was. Um, and then I think as I got more into sort of a seated meditation based practice, it caused me to deal with these things. So whatever would come up, it was being dealt with. And you, you experience these with breath holds for those that have done free diving and stuff as well. Um, so yeah, uh, I'd say more like inqui- I'm, I feel inquisitive around these things now. I think because it's become part of my lifestyle, it would feel wrong to not have these things in there now. Um, it's part of my life. Like that is me mm-hmm. is that I love moving and I, I feel good for it. Um, equally I, it's that form of self-expression as well. And I think we all need that, whether it's music or dancing or whatever it might be. I think there is something in us that likes to express and I find the art forms, the martial, I've been drawn more to arts, like the martial art, the hand balancing, this sort of stuff, because I see it more as it's refined. There's a lot to it. So, yeah, and I'm, also, I'm inquisitive of where it could go. I, I'm, I'm very grateful for the body I have and the fact we're even here. I, I reflect on this daily. It's like I, I've always been fascinated with through space. My granddad taught me at a young age, he used to show me countless books and programs on space. And it makes you realize your insignificance and also how crazy it is that we're even here yeah. full stop. Like the chances of us even appearing at this time is just insane. So I'm really grateful to have the ability to move um, equally reflecting back on the armed forces and time in conflict. I'm grateful that I came out with working parts with limbs that still work and that still exist and stuff. And I'm grateful for that. And I think it'd be a shame for me to not use that. Um, for, for myself and for others as well I think this, this is an important thing but yeah I just enjoy it I think that's, it really comes down to I just enjoy it and it makes, makes me feel good um, and I love teaching other people it I see as a teacher I do it as well because I, I expect that what I'm teaching I should be I should be achieving a level above or a few levels above in order to teach I won't teach someone if I don't feel like I can, can give them a few levels above 
I'll pass them on to someone else. I think it's only fair because it, yeah. it's not about my development. It's about the student's development. And if someone came to me and said, I want to learn the one arm, I would 100% pass them on to one of my teachers and say, they're going to be a far better place to teach you because their knowledge is their knowledge and their application of that is far better than what I can provide. Yeah. Talking about teaching when you are, um, or you take students on, what do you ask or what do you try to understand from them initially before you start trying to construct a process for them? Um, I look at their past. I think one of the big things, obviously, we need to look at is injuries. Um, what, what's the limitations in terms of where are they at this current time? And what do we feel? Like what are the short-term projects? What are the long-term projects? Where are they strong and where do they feel weak? Um, partly where they feel weak and also where I think they could be weak and um, i think there's a difference we don't sometimes know where we're weak until someone points it mm. out for us and that's the other value of a teacher um, i go to my teacher to be told how bad i am basically <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going there for him to say well done dave brilliant well done you've done well again um which is rare uh, but it's more about him saying like there's a weakness there and you're ignoring it like you need to look at that and 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 deal with this and that's what i expect of people that train with me as well um i try to take on more people that have an open approach um i try and say like look, let's give it a few months because i don't just want to do a four week this isn't like a four week get ripped ad plan this isn't what we're, we're here to do we're looking to explore something and try and unpack it in time and three month i, I work on a 10 percent rule with people so i always tell people at the start how long do you think these patterns have existed in your body? And let's work on 10% of that. So if you think you've done three years, let's go on a minimum of three months before we even start to ask the questions like, is this going anywhere or not? Um, so yeah, injuries are a big thing because uh, I've got some clients that have injuries that might not be normal to others. Some have been, one person has been shot in the past because he mm. has a military background and various other bits and pieces. So this provides a different thing. Like in a textbook, it doesn't give you a, doesn't give you person A has been shot. So their shoulder <laughs> doesn't, doesn't happen that way. Um, so yeah, it, it, that, that is one thing. And just an open mind, really. I think that's one of the big things I, I like to sort of take on people that are interested with body weight stuff as well, but I'm grateful that I've had the input from different teachers and been uh, subjected to different practices that I could say to someone, I can teach you a number of different things and we can deal, we can layer these principles on, or um, actually I've got a good friend who is very good at this and we can do like a split training plan. So you can spend some time with him and I can teach you the other concepts. So I, I've learned in time that it's very easy to say, um, I'll deal with all of it, but it, fundamentally people are always going to, people are always going to sort of want to sort of come back and train if they've taken on things from many different people mm. and they feel like they've developed through different sectors. And I think if you provided that by using other people, I think that's something that's key. Um, and that's something I started doing more of. Um, yeah. That's really nice. I think because that's also that recognition, uh, uh, recognizing that you're really just there for that other person for, for their mm. development. Right. And if you're not the best person that in that position, just helping to find them, that solution i think that's uh yeah that's that's a really well i think it's probably hard as the teacher sometimes because you're like oh you know I, they've yeah. come to me for the teaching i want to give them everything but uh recognizing that somebody else might be better for the job you know it's it's humbling as well yeah I'd, yeah and, and equally there's there's people that inspire me so i i feel that if, if people inspire me then um if i can provide some 
if I can genuinely provide something to the person who has come to me, then I'll, I'll tell them straight and say, I can, I can give you this. We could attain this in time if you give it the time and the practice. Mm-hmm. But equally, um, yeah, if someone inspires you as well, I, I think there's nothing wrong with saying, look, I can give you this, but hey, man, this person, this person is brilliant as well. I've got some really good friends in this space that, um, that th- this, this culture, just a handstand, who would have thought like, when I started learning, friends were like, why are you, I, basically I have a balcony and we have uh, a load of houses that look onto the balcony mm-hmm. and friends of mine used to drive past and just see my legs sticking up doing like whatever <laughs> it was. And they're like, he's at it again. Um, like how, how does your wife just let you handstand? I said, because I know, I know somewhere down the line, this is going to be something that if, if it's, if I'm passionate about this and achieve a certain standard, other people will want to learn it. And I think that's apparent through anything. If you give it the time and you give it the dedication, that is infectious. I think people want that from you. Um, it's, I think it's very obvious who dedicates time and who doesn't. And I, I found, mm-hmm. I found many friends just purely down to like how much they love, love sort of hand balancing or love, love moving. Um, so this has been, it's been really good for that. Cause I can also say like, I've got a great friend in Spain that you could go and see or, or a good friend in Canada and this sort of stuff. So yeah, it's amazing to think these things would actually draw us so close as, as people as well. It's like having that common bond. Yeah, I think so. It's really beautiful when you meet like that other hand balancing nerd and you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, we're <laughs> so much in common. <laughs> you know, at, yeah. at what, what stage, um, do you normally feel comfortable in taking your practitionership into a teaching material? You know, do you sit with mm. a certain thing that maybe let's say is like a, a, a press, you know, press the hands and like, mm-hmm. and then was it sometime after that, then you were like, okay, now I can teach that. Normally, how do you, what goes through your head and at what stage do you start going, okay, like I can offer this as actually something I can teach. I would I, I think in, uh, how do you say this? I think I've almost got these sort of internal standards, which I sort of hold myself by and they probably come from certain, uh, from, from spending time with different teachers that for instance, like if I was referring to a hand balance, if I was learning a skill and I was only entering in it and only holding it two out of 10 times, there's no way on earth I'd teach that. No way on earth. I'd want to be hitting that consistently every single day, 10 out of 10 uh, or nine out of 10. So there's always room to fall out of these things. So if I felt like I could, um, it's good to test ourselves. I think obviously sometimes if you set the goal of saying, I would like to teach that concept within the year's time, it does provide, uh, give you a bit of a kick up the butt to actually want to improve it. Otherwise you can just stay in maintenance mode. Mm. But yeah, I, I'd want to be hitting something like nine out of 10 times before I actually passed it on to someone else because I feel it's obvious if you've taken a shortcut or if you've got there too quick. And, and I think you're only gonna, if you turn up at that workshop, this is the danger of online, of the social media thing. And obviously there's been quite a few accounts that have come out like pointing out people's uh, ability to fake certain skills. And I, I think there's credibility in that as well. I think because it does, I think it highlights to the practitioner or the teacher that they're probably not ready to, to pass this on yet. Um, equally, I think once you've attained a certain skill that you don't always necessarily need to demonstrate it to be in order to pass on that concept. So I know older practitioners that don't need to do 
uh, head kick in martial arts because they've been and done it and they know exactly how to teach their student. I knew a gymnastic coach that would literally walk next to people tumbling and just know when to, there's a flick, there's a flick, and then they go over exactly as they should because they're timing spot on. Hmm. Um, so I think it depends what discipline you're looking at. But in regards to me, if I'm teaching something and demonstrating something, I want to be proficient at it before I even take it to a workshop. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned before about your love of using like the kettlebells or, you know, I think I've seen on your profile as well, working with the Joe, the, the stick and, and clubs. Um, and, you know, this yeah. is an area that I haven't doubled in at all. So yeah. What do you, how, how have these tools changed your practice and what do you normally explore by using these tools as opposed to, you know, like just doing body weight strength. I think you mentioned, you know, about rotational strength, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, interested to hear a bit more. Yeah. I, I see with a lot of, when I, when I was into a lot of say linear strength training, I mean, nothing's linear. Everything has uh, no bone in the body is completely straight or flat and, mm -hmm. and everything has a curvature to it. Like we rotate around joints or hinge joints. Um, so I think it's always important to note that anything that is deemed linear still has a circular fashion to it. Even the squat has, has that within it, spiraling the legs to activate external rotation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I did find that there was these gaps. So within these patterns, there was gaps in between them that could be explored. So for instance, between like, a, let's pick an example, an overhead press and a bench press, there is a gap in between there. Yeah. You could say it's an incline press, but you're still looking at a straight line instead of marrying these things up then there's a certain timing so the club bells really when i was introduced to the indian clubs i was using it primarily for shoulder health initially so just like the inside outside mill uh, one looks like you're casting out to the side and the other looks like you're drawing the elbow in towards the center they were brilliant for my shoulder health i noticed huge improvements especially after hand balancing mm. um, it was just nice to have quite a static hold and then have something that was very free uh, and created some form of traction on my joints. So that was really good. And these things have been around Royal Marine PTIs have been using clubs and still do use clubs as part of their routines. And in around the second world war, uh, a friend of mine used to clear lofts and he used to find hundreds of these things of just wooden clubs everywhere. Hmm. So they've almost gone through this like rebirth where people have started to understand that they are important. Um, the Joe, I learned through martial arts and I realized that circular pattern, uh, there's a lot of blending involved. Although it looks like you're just twirling a stick, what you're actually doing is the stick's doing 50%. You've injected the energy at the start and you're following the stick and it's moving around your center. So you're, you're making up the other 50%. The stick's doing 50, you're doing 50. And that will fluctuate everything between, say, 90-10 and 10-90%. So you're always marrying and trying to and fill in the other side of the circle like the yin and yang concept so I, I really got attracted to that and more of the meditative practice so taking it down the beach at low tide and just just flowing for a bit and just literally switching off and i generally found if i did 10 minutes of that stuff i'd get to my practice a lot um i'd be very ingrained in my practice after following that it's almost mm. like my mind was like a reset switch so, so yeah, I really got into that. The, the heavier clubs as well, they're, they're testing because if you're, you've, you haven't got good posture and you start to up the weight, you're going to get pulled off your feet. So yeah, I, I still love them now. I throw them in. I throw them in like once every two weeks. I'll tell you what, the forearm pump is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, yeah. That must help with the, uh, the hand balancing as well, you know. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. You, you're going to, yeah. I always find it, for about the first three years, he used to come down and he's ah, <laughs> staring at your arms. Um, it does get better. And I'll tell you what blocks make a huge difference. If you can get on blocks, you don't use the fingers as much. So you mm. just tend to put more of the weight towards the heel of the hand. And that really alleviates some of that pump. Uh, but it doesn't disappear, especially Miguel's a bit of a stickler for max holds. And he's like, I want you at two, three minute max holds before you even, I mean, a lot of those approaches are like, you shouldn't really go into the one arm uh, unless you've got at least a good minute minute hold and mm -hmm. a lot of the warm-ups i remember my first workshop i did with miguel uh, i was in london and i think i went in there on a 30 second handstand i left on a two minute 15 by the friday what like within yeah that wow within okay. five days uh, five six days and that was just literally because he's standing next to you and full-on koala bear grab hold of your legs you're not going down until you've done two minutes plus um but that, again, if you look at strength training, that is a, is a form of overload and your body does adapt to that in time. So yeah. we often come down way before we think we can. It goes back to what you were mentioning before about where you think you're, you're at your limit, but you've got like, well, that's more than 100% over the 30 seconds. So yeah, you, that, that, that's a nice example. <laughs> <laughs> there was a saying in the military and I used to love it. It's like... Um, you, you, I don't know, you, you've been running or walking with Kit uh, for six, seven hours, wherever it might be, more, more walking if it was that length of time. And they'd be like, you're like how, how far is it? Like just over the next hill and 10 hills later, you actually get to that hill. And I try and use that concept with like holding breath. Mm -hmm. So just another 10 seconds and just another 10 seconds and just another 10 seconds. And before you know it, you've just added a minute and a half. And you thought you were going to quit a minute and a half and you've got up to three minutes or three and a half minutes. Um, and that can be, a, that can definitely be applied with a hand balance as well. Like how long can I hold this? But I'm just going to take it step by step. I think the tendency is to sometimes look at the goal and think, why am I not there? And it can be very, dis uh, you can get very despondent if you always look at the top of the hill. It's like when you're cycling, keep your, keep your vision 10 meters in front. And before you know, you've done a hundred meter hill. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important process to keep hold of. Just stay with the practice, keep it on a weekly basis or even practice by practice basis. And eventually that cumulative effect, uh, that moving average does increase over time. And I wanted to touch on how you deal with recovery and like stress management, because, you know, you're doing a lot of training. I know you mentioned a little bit about the breath practice just then but maybe if you could share like what are some of the protocols you turn to and maybe what you recommend to your students as well when they come to you and they're like oh you know i'm not recovering well enough uh sleep is king sleep is uh something that um i didn't really appreciate as as much as as i do now um but it's like looking at people like matthew walker's work why we sleep is a good book and mm -hmm. um, some of the statistics in there are crazy like if you look at some of the like losing 15 minutes of REM sleep, the impact on mortality is like, I, I think just throwing out the figures, if I remember right, it's like 13% increase on mortality, like the decrease in your lifespan. Um, so that's a big thing for recovery. The other thing is food, nutrient dense food um, is huge. Um, I generally eat like a higher protein, higher fat diet. And I have found my recovery is good for that, but I'm working with a nutritionist at the minute. Uh, just to really dial into that just to make sure uh, things are good and I recommend that if, if clients are feeling fatigued that 
we look at their training, we add in more rest, if the nutrition looks good as well, but if we start to maybe dial things in a bit more, let's look at some blood work, let's look at a few other bits and pieces. And again, I recommend to someone that is qualified in that field that can really help, and we work in conjunction. Cold therapy, I think is brilliant. I think that's been a real eye-opener for myself. Um, cold therapy daily has definitely been a big thing. The research is mixed, but I do think contrasting hot and cold uh, the sauna, I, I wish I've been trying to get a sauna in my house for months, but my wife isn't having it. I'm like, she's like, you've got an infrared thing. You've got this in here, but we're, <laughs> we're not getting, we're not getting it's a my wood sauna too. in a rented property. <laughs> I'm going to, it's, it's going to happen. I'm going to have a sauna with a plunge pool outdoors and my own gym. Uh, that's going to happen. Um, I've set it in there now. It's a law of attraction. It's out there. Um, but yeah, yeah, they're the main things moving slowly as well uh, so going out for walks and sunlight sunlight's huge um and mindset the mind saps so much energy we can lose like 30 percent of our energy just to our brain function mm-hmm. and understanding that something like breath work which you will engage a, a stronger parasympathetic nerve tone if we think about f- for those that aren't familiar with it um parasympathetic parachute meaning nervous system calming down induces better digestion um, uh, reproductive function, relaxation, all of these sorts of things. When we're highly stressed, all of those things shut down. So people with chronic digestive issues um, end up having things like brain fog and falling asleep a lot because we, we forget as well, there's twice as many nerves going up to the brain from the gut as there is going down. So if we're not dealing with these concepts as well, we could be the best mover on the planet. But uh, and we look like our recovery, we're like, we're probably resting one day here and we've got a day off here and we're stretching. We're doing some form of like um, mobility, but, but we're forgetting all of the other things. So I think um, food, light, breathing uh, and slow movement and that sort of stuff and mindset are very key to that process. And that's something I really push on clients. And again, talking like if they feel like things aren't working for them, then we adapt to our change things um, because I often find with the program, especially in the early days, I mean, you, you probably find something similar. When you put something out there, it's more of a bit of a, a bit of a test and adjust period in the first mm. couple of months. It's like, let's see what sticks. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, this works, this works, and this works. We're going to continue down this route, build some more strength through this, and then we can start to work on the weaknesses gradually. Um, but yeah, sleep is king. Sleep's huge. Yeah, I think when you start finally appreciating that and giving yourself the necessary amount, right? consistently it's like the game changer um i think that was one of the funny things for me during the covid lockdown period here was because i didn't have to commute anymore then i got Mm. to consistently put on like another hour hour and a half of sleep and i was just like wow i'm just growing here like this is amazing (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's um yeah those biceps Uh, uh, (laughs) yeah we uh we underestimate how much we need. I mean, my, my dad worked in a business that required late nights and early mornings and he had four to five hours sleep a night. So some of the stats around, like if you get less than five hours sleep in one night, you can see up to a drop of 50% in your immune system. So Mm. Matthew Walker was saying that during this whole period that we're in, if people only slept better, then the effects of illness and viruses and various other bits and pieces wouldn't be as profound which is, we know that like people that sleep better tend to get ill less. Um, and my, my dad suffered for it. My dad had heart issues in his fifties and that sort of stuff. And mm. I think 
he's more aware of it now. Now he's in his, his 70s now. Um, so I, I looked at these things as well growing up and thought, ah, actually, like that's got to work for my people I train and also myself. I need to take on these things because otherwise we're just working well, what we're working for. UFC athletes are sleeping. I know there's, there's some athletes that are doing like nine, 10 hours a night. But these guys are doing cryotherapy as well. So cryotherapy has been shown to have huge benefits, like three different temperatures of cryotherapy. A friend of mine was telling me this in the SNC world. Um, three different types of cryotherapy used through the day is showing massive uh, improvements in recovery. Uh, 20 minutes of sauna, heat stress is, again, crazy amounts of studies around this uh, to show the benefits. So. Again, these are all the studies I'm trying to pitch to my wife about getting our sauna. <laughs> and, and the cryotherapy. Like, and the cryotherapy room. That, that, that's yes. on the end. I'll have to put that on the end. <laughs> so, you know, if you had the chance to have a word with yourself maybe like five, six years back, what, what, mm. would, you, what, what would you say to yourself? What, what advice would you give to yourself? <laughs> so, that's an interesting one, that. Um, do you know, do you know what I, I think very often in life, it's very easy to look back and say, I would do this differently or I'd improve this, but I always think I wouldn't be doing what I am now if something had changed my path somewhat. So I, I needed to make so-called mistakes or I'd rather call them life lessons in order to, to move down this thing. So sometimes if you stir the water up a bit too much, then you actually never get to here. Um, I didn't envisage moving to Thailand. Um, so I felt I actually took this approach forward and I learned this. Um, I used to listen to a lot of Alan Watts and he, his perspective made me think in depth about like what I was doing at the time. And I was driving up and down the motorway thinking, why am I spending three, four hours a day in the car? Like I could be, I could be doing something else. Like I'm, I'm paying for a house I'm never in. So in regards to your question, I, I don't think I'd change it. I think I'd just say keep going, like just experience um, what you are. Maybe sleep more, going back to it. Like get some more sleep. You don't need to work as much as you are. Um, but I learned a lot. I, I think I had to go. We have to go through adversity sometimes in order to understand what we shouldn't be doing and equally uh, to gain the attributes in order to take forward in life. Um, so I thought when we moved to Thailand, it was like, Everyone around us was going, why are you leaving? You've got a great job. You've got the house sorted. You've got this. And I said, well, I'm never going to get to do this again. So I tried to take that, that idea forward and say, well, how am I going to look back on this in 10 years? Will I regret it? And 100% would have. So I, I just would have said, yeah, just keep going and, and just keep taking it in. Just, just enjoy, enjoy what you're doing now. Final question. What is your guilty snack, which you can oh. never say no to? Guilty snack, dark chocolate, 85% green and blacks. Um, that, that's up there. I, equally, I like ice cream once a week. Um, I'm a big Haagen-Dazs fan. And, uh, oh, yep. Well, this, uh, yeah, the uh, chocolate and hazelnut one is up there. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's something I really enjoy. And, and equally, I, I do like a coffee. Um, I, I love double espresso. Like that, that's my thing. It has been for a long time. So like two or three of those a day and that's my thing. So dark chocolate, double espresso and once a week, a bit of Haagen-Dazs. That's, uh, that's where I'm at. All the indulgences. I love it. And yeah, Haagen-Dazs, yeah. I do a line. Um, if it's offered, I don't think I could say no either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my diet's so clean on, on a weekly basis. Like I, I, all, my, all our food, we spend an absolute fortune on food um, mm. because I prioritize food above 
above nearly everything in terms of like um I won't skimp on it at all. So best, best if we're using like when we're having meat, best cuts, locally sourced, regenerative farming, mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff. We we try and take all these things on board, um, and that's why we pay a bit more for it because yeah, food is health, and uh, yeah. But the other things yeah, they're, they're there to be enjoyed. I think we're not here. There's these things that you can do within a healthy box, and I think that's some of them. Um, I don't know where Hagenos would fit in that, but the, <laughs> the way I've just way i justified that is there's only about four ingredients in there and a lot of these ice creams have got like 30 ingredients so uh, that, that's the way i've justified eating a whole tub of the stuff <laughs> <laughs> plus you got to enjoy sometimes as well you know so i think that yeah. does more than anything right to you to your stress and how you're feeling but um it's been wonderful to connect with you today david it's been a lovely chat we covered a lot of different areas as well maybe just to cap it off just for the listeners maybe fill them in for the next couple of months what you're yeah what do you have planned yeah um firstly thank you so much for having me on here it's been a it's been great to connect and um and chat um it has also been good to dive into some of these things because it's quite rare uh, i actually get to have these conversations with people outside of just me and my teacher or someone else um yeah next few months uh we're starting to get events back on but we've still got a couple of months um in the UK until things actually open up fully. Um, we've had to move a few retreats. We've got one in Greece in 2022 and my wife and I, and obviously the little one will be going out there for that. But we decided just to move it on a year just to give us a bit of space to, to plan. So we're doing a lot of events in the UK. Uh, we just put an event on through the natural edge. We just sold out in 16 hours. Um, Amazing. And that's based in the mountains uh, in Wales and that's cold water therapy um outdoor exposure movement that sort of stuff um i'm looking at planning some hand balance hand balance and movement weekends uh in september and october in the uk and yeah all of those will be on my website uh davidtilstonmovement.com so yeah that's that's the next few months and 2022 yeah i'm trying not to over plan too much because who knows where we're going to be at so it's just again it's just just looking a few months forward and then just uh yeah just adapting as, as it comes through Well, I think we're all hoping that everything can open up so that you can continue on with these exciting plans. And yeah, I'll include all those details on the podcast show notes as well as to where to check out your work. But um, yeah, once again, David, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, very much a big thank you for David for jumping on the podcast and sharing his wonderful story. Very, very interesting, his whole background and how he's combined all those experiences to the principles that he teaches now with his movement training. And once again, to you guys for listening in on the episode, I really appreciate it. Remember, if you enjoyed it, please share it around. It really helps me connect with more people and also to share these conversations with a larger audience. If you have any questions or want to connect, you can find me on Instagram. That's at P at P-H-A-O-N-P, or you can head over to thepassivehang.com and you can jump online there and find my details in the forum on the Active Hang, which is the community discussion board where you can post, ask questions, and share your thoughts. Thanks once again, guys, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.